morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where you can make a private shopping appointment or enjoy curbside pickup. Inside the Writer's Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Stephen Rowley, whose novel The Editor has just been published in paperback. Stephen, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Thank you so much for having me. I don't usually start out this way, but it's impossible to talk about this novel without knowing the identity of the eponymous editor of the title. So why don't you just give us the pitch for the book and, and tell us who that editor is? Sure. You know, in a parallel universe, I wish everyone could come to it fresh. Um, but I think the, the cat is out of the bag. Uh, and, and the titular editor is none other than Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, who had a, uh, for, for any of your listeners who don't know, um, particularly younger listeners, she had a very prolific uh, sort of 15-year career as a book editor after her second husband, Aristotle Onassis, died. Uh, she sort of put her head down, moved back to New York, and went to work. Um, and so this is a book that sort of takes place in in uh, the early 1990s and supposes what it would be like for a young editor, uh, sorry, a young writer getting his big break uh, by finding out that there is an editor and a publisher interested in his debut novel. And that editor turns out to be none other than, than Jacqueline Onassis. Exactly. Yeah. There's so much about uh, Jackie, that makes her intriguing to us. I think even fifty years after she, or more than she was since she's been the first lady. But what in mm-hmm. particular drew you to her? At, not just as a as an icon or or a, a symbol of almost the twentieth century, but but as a character. Yeah, it was everything that we didn't know about her which drew me to her. Um, you know, there are certainly uh, you know she's certainly one of the most. Uh, well-photographed women of the 20th century, uh, one of the most famous. Um, but she was also uh, someone who didn't really uh, like the status of being a celebrity or an icon or the sort of Jackie O, as we came to think of her later. Um, but she was a very quiet woman, a very private woman. Um, and she had this incredible love for books. And that was an entry point for me. Uh, I remember seeing a... a um, uh, like a um, paparazzi photo of her walking down the street in Manhattan, just with her nose buried in a book walking down the sidewalk. (laughs) And I thought, you know, who is that woman? Because that's not what we think of first when we think of, um, uh, you know, Jackie Kennedy or Jackie O. Um, Just this this woman doing what we all have, for all of us book lovers have perhaps done, you know, sort of been nose buried in a book uh, as we go about our day. And I wanted to know more about her. Uh, you know, she is famous, but in famous in part for she had sublimated so much of her life to these two marriages. Um, and then she had this really incredible third act where she was able to step out of the shadow of both of those men and into her own. And the drudgery um, and the, you know, any of us who've worked in offices and we sort of know office politics and, and uh, fluorescent lighting and all of that 
sort of nonsense we, we sort of think about like, oh, I can't wait for the weekend. Or if you were in, in an office, you might be dreaming of being on a yacht in Greece. Well, you know, she was on a yacht in Greece, sort of dreaming of the opposite, dreaming of <laughs> being able to define herself as a career woman and making her mark in an office. Yeah, yeah. I love that image of her walking down the street uh, with her nose in a book. Because so many of our images of her are... are not exactly superhuman, but it's almost like she's on this other level from us. And that really puts yeah. her, it really humanizes her to have that, that picture of her. Um, yeah. It made her seem accessible in a way that I thought, Oh, well maybe I could research that part of her life and, um, and, you know, come up with a story. Yeah. Yeah. Now, like you, I've, I've populated my novels with, with real historical characters running the gamut from Jane Austen to William Howard Taft. But what do you what do you see as the unique challenges of fictionalizing a real person? Right, I, I always get the interesting question. You know, someone will invariably ask me, or or certainly they did back when we could do live book events in the <laughs> yeah. world. Back in the day, but uh, you know, another time. Uh, but you know, someone would invariably ask me, you know, like, what, do you have the right to do this? And it's always interesting to um, ascertain if they're asking a uh, a a legal question, like, do, you know, do you have the right to put yeah, a yeah. fiction, a real life historical figure in fiction? And certainly there's a whole genre of, of fiction uh, that has done that, uh, you know, from everything from, uh, uh, you know, E.L. Doctor on down, you know, writers have done this for a very long, Shakespeare, you yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> for a very long time. So um, the, the other question is, is sort of a moral right, you know, what, what gives you the right to interpret her? And that's where it gets a little more, Tricky, and there's there's um, you know, and and that's in where the the challenge lies uh, lies for a writer, I think, is to do it in a way that honors the subject. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly, it's easier. Uh, last year, when the hardcover came out, uh, around the time marking the 25th anniversary of her passing, yeah. uh, so with a little time and a little distance, you get a little more freedom. I think it's it's very interesting conversation. For, um, you know, I'm thinking of a, a writer like Curtis Sittenfeld, who has her book Rodham just came out, uh, sort of a, a, a um, speculative fiction of, about Hillary uh, Clinton. And yeah, that's yeah. that's where it becomes stickier, I think, when, when the subject is very much still part of our, our lives. Yeah. Um, but knowing that she was not a private person and this was the most private part of her life, her, her time as a working woman, um, you know, I, I approached it with the, with an incredible amount of respect, um, hopefully delicacy, and uh, I did the work. You know, um, I researched. There, there are certainly no shortage of biographies uh, on her life. There are two great books um, about her time in publishing, including a book called Reading Jackie by Bill Kuhn. Uh, if anybody wants, reads the editor and wants to know more, um, and then. You know, I was lucky enough to have a supportive uh, publisher and editor myself who helped me get in touch with some of her former colleagues and some writers who worked with her and getting to talk uh, one-on-one with people who who had uh, experience with her, including several who uh, didn't want to talk by, and, you know, and said outright, you know, the reason that I had a successful working relationship with Jackie was that I never spoke about her outside of the office. And, yeah. and I, they were going to continue to do that to this day. And that, you know, that in itself is very telling. Um, but, you know, I even went as far as read the books that she edited during the years where this novel takes place, um, just to sort of 
forensically see if I could try to recreate her desk. What were what what manuscripts were also on her desk at that time? What topics were of interest to her? What what thoughts might have been in the front of her mind? Um, but you know, the challenge in this, as you well know, is the when you need that character to do something uh, to help move the pot along and you know they wouldn't do that, you know, oh, if Jackie would just say this or do this, you know Jackie would never say that or do that, <laughs> uh, you know. Um, but that's also re- can be rewarding too because, you know, when you're writing a novel, sometimes you're creating characters in a world out of whole cloth and, and sometimes having some parameters helps. So, um you know, it's just uh, every genre has its challenge, and this is this is a unique one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had I've had readers. I wrote a novel where Jane Austen was the main character, and I've had I've had readers contact mm-hmm. me and say, "I've been trying to find out about this this other person, but he's not on Wikipedia." And I go, "Well, you know, it's a novel <laughs> yeah. that some of these people are made up." <laughs> yeah. Um, I, yeah. I had well, a, that is that is true. It, at the end of the day, as well as it, you know, um, it has those two magical words on the cover: a novel. Exactly, yeah, um, and yeah. that is, I can do all the research in the world. I can talk to as many people as I can, but there's going to be an element of this portrayal that's my interpretation. Sure. Um, and I can, you know, the research can get you so far, but you have to um, then sort of jump off the cliff a bit. Well, that kind of leads into my next question. And I, I had a conversation some years ago with a couple of other historical novelists, Melanie Benjamin and Erica Roebuck. We were having lunch together. And we were talking mm-hmm. about how we didn't want to research too deeply. We didn't want to know too much because we wanted to have that novelist's freedom to create. And we were afraid if we knew too much about the real person, you know, we'd end up writing a biography rather than than a novel. Did, did you ever have that sense of, okay, I, I don't need to go any deeper. I, I Now I have the character and the character is is more important than the than the real person. Uh, I think I had that in terms of getting her voice down, you know, in writing writing dialogue. You know, mm-hmm. I would listen mm-hmm. to her speak and, um, it, it, you know, what, what I could find recordings of her. And, um, it, you know, that would take you that would take you to a certain point. And then once I found the rhythm of the voice, I didn't want to hear more. Um, I, I think I didn't have that problem where there's a lot less known about her time in publishing. So I was hungry for any sort of scrap I could get. You know, she only gave one interview during her entire career to Publishers Weekly. Uh, and she talked about her authors, you know, which, yeah. again, very telling, but it didn't reveal much about herself. So uh, I wasn't running into too much uh, too much information. So I, did, I didn't feel constricted in that way, but that was just for the uniqueness of my subject. Yeah. So we talked. you talked a little bit about how you balance that um, – real person and character between Jackie, the real Jackie Onassis and the character in your book. But this is a book mm-hmm. about a novelist named James uh, Smale who writes a novel about a real person. Uh, that is to say mm-hmm. his mother. So he struggles with this same issue. How does, how does James deal with that issue of when, when is my allegiance to the real person and when is my allegiance to the character that I've created out of that person? Right. It's, um, it's a you know a book within a book here, um, and yeah, he absolutely struggles with some of the same issues that I struggled with, uh, and and for him it hits much closer to home because the person that he's writing about is his own his own mother, um, so I, I think and uh, and that's where you know these real dilemmas lie for writers, um, particularly when they're inspired by their own lives. You know, my, my debut novel was a book called Lily and the Octopus. 
And it was very much um, autobiographical fiction. Um, you know, the names were changed to protect <laughs> the innocent, as it were. But um, some identities are really difficult to disguise. Sure. You know, mom uh, is one that comes to mind. Yeah, you, yeah. you know, somehow eagle-eyed readers crack that code. Um, <laughs> so... You know, I, that was something I very much wanted to to explore. In fact, it was one of the, yeah. the inspirations for the book in that I, I wrote this very small autobiographical novel or what I thought would be um, small. And then it was picked up by, by Simon & Schuster and became a, a national bestseller. And, and then it was translated in, in 20 languages. And, and there's a film in the works. And, you know, all these things are spiraling much you know, beyond my control, certainly, and all these things I was saying very privately or thought I was, was were suddenly uh, out and available to a larger audience uh, in a way that I hadn't intended. So, yeah, yeah. you know, selecting Jackie as an editor was a way to find, uh, to, to write about a, a writer writing something deeply personal yeah. and having it spiral yeah. beyond his control. But, you know, it, it is difficult. And the, the whole, you know, the crux of the book is, is his struggle to figure out how to balance, particularly when you, he's caught between two very powerful women in his life, his, right. his own mother, and then this sort of idealized version of America's mother in, uh, in Jackie. Yeah. You begin the novel, you drop us right into an excerpt from James's novel. And I can't resist mm-hmm. telling my readers, or my listeners, that James's novel is presciently titled for these days, Quarantine. Uh, yeah. um, but tell us a little bit about creating that novel within the novel and how how quarantine as a novel relates to the editor as a novel they they seem almost parallel to me in some ways yeah it is a little creepy now that i think about you know what a, james's novel is about a sort of um, metaphorical quarantine right. uh, and now we're living in a very real quarantine uh, it's a little bit it's a little bit eerie now that those are the first two words in the book the quarantine yeah um but, uh, yeah, it was a challenge because, um, you know, and I, I think people ask me also, are, are you going to write James's novel next? Can we read the full <laughs> uh, version of The Quarantine? And, and no, I'm putting, a, I'm putting a hard no on that. I'd I'm say, not yeah, going yeah. to write. I'm not going to write that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but thanks for the intro. But the, uh, the challenge always with that is to just give enough of it to sort of see the novel that I'm writing. Um, and it has to be hopefully good enough uh, or, or unique enough that you can see it attracting someone like Jacqueline Onassis, um, but not have it overshadow uh, the book that I'm trying to write, uh, you know, in, in the editor. Uh, and how much or how little, to, uh, you know, or, or, or even not to include any, you know, choice. That was a choice, uh, you know, that went back and forth on it in different drafts. Yeah, um, yeah. But I did find it helpful to give my main character a sort of a parallel struggle to to my own. Yeah. Um, and it made me really feel for him. And I did like the fact, because when it opens with that excerpt, I thought, oh, okay, we're going to go back and forth between the novel within the novel. But that excerpt is the only place yeah. we actually um, are in yeah. James's novel. And I kind of like that. I like that we sort of establish his fictional world, and, and then we get on with with what happens next. And what happens next is, yeah. as you said, in, in the opening scene where we actually see James is he goes to meet his editor. And as readers, if we paid any attention to advertising or cover copy or blurbs or any of those things, as you said, the cat's out of the bag. We know who he's going to meet, but he doesn't. 
Um, how do you use that knowledge that, um, and you know, you, first of all, how do you use things like the cover and the blurbs to set up expectations for your readers? And then how do you take advantage of those expectations? Right. That's, uh, you know, that's a challenging thing. And sometimes where uh, the author as, uh, you know, as writer and artist might clash with, say, a marketing and publicity department, because, you know, here you have the biggest hook into perhaps selling the book uh, is something that if I had my way in a pure world, I would love the reader to do, to be surprised sure. at yeah. the same moment that James is. Yeah. Um, but that's not the realities of publishing right now, particularly um, with, you know, with this new paperback edition, uh, Jackie is featured, you know, an image of Jackie is featured prominently on the cover. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, I have great sympathies and, and um, it's hard to, you know, there's a lot of noise out there. There are a lot of books buying for attention and, and you, can't, you can't hide your, your, best, um, your best hook no matter, yeah. no matter how much you might want to, to control the reader's experience. Um, so knowing that it would get out there and it would be sort of our, perhaps our best marketing tool um, is just enough. You know, you just want enough out there to um, to cre- create some intrigue and, uh, you know, really get people to imagine, oh, what would it like be like to sit across the table from, from Jacqueline Onassis? And, and, you know, part of the book, it, it is wish fulfillment. It is sort of fantasy, and it's sure. fun to then lean into that once people know um, there is a bit, you know, there's a scene where, where they have, uh, where Jackie fixes him a, a cocktail yeah. and it's like, yes. you know, if we're, we're going to have fun with this, let's really ha- have a little fun with it and, and really try to imagine what, uh, uh, the fantasy of a friendship with her would have been like. Absolutely. And I do think that there's, there's, there's great fun for the reader in that opening scene being one step ahead of James because he goes into yeah. that room and sits down and we're just thinking, oh, this is going to be fun. This is really going to be good. Yeah. You know, he doesn't know what's coming, but we do. And, <laughs> and I think there's, as a reader, there's a certain satisfaction to that, you know, being yeah. one, one step ahead, you know. Um, yeah. So, uh, Jack, you, you mentioned that Jackie's actually on the cover of, of the paperback. Is the paperback cover different from the hardback? You know, there's one point at which... Jackie says to James that she takes a great interest in the design of her her book covers, and so I immediately thought, okay, what's the story of the design of this book cover? How, how did the cover evolve? Uh, yeah, um, the, the, that was you know it's always sort of a, a struggle um, to again leaning into how much do we say, how much do we not? Sure. Um, the 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 uh, so the uh, the paperback is coming out Tuesday, uh, June thirtieth. Uh, the the hardcover image, though, was of sort of an antique desk with a book, uh, sort of a manuscript and her sunglasses sitting on it. And it was just sort of hinting at Jackie with, yeah, the, yeah. with the sort of signature sunglasses. Uh, but, uh, you know, with the paperback, you know, it's sort of like people hopefully have maybe heard about this or word of mouth or, or seen a review or something. So the cat's really out of the bag, uh, you know, 15 months after the hardcover sure, came out. So, sure. Uh, you know, and there's an opportunity to really uh, attract new readers that, that maybe, um, overlook the, the hardcover. So, um, yeah. Well, I mean, it's a great cover. It really, um, you know, it, it pulls you in and I, I'm wondering in my mind, because I have a book coming out in September, you know, Mm -hmm. people aren't going and browsing around bookstores right now, which is what 
the cover is for is to grab your attention when you're browsing around bookstores. Right. So I hope all the right. effort we're putting into these beautiful covers pays off at some point. Um, well, yeah. It's, I know, oh boy, do I miss, I miss bookstores oh, so much. Yeah, and I, yeah. I miss that sort of being able to browse right now. And, and uh, my heart is with our independent booksellers, particularly who are, who are doing, you know, a lot of heavy lifting right now yeah, with very demanding customers and, and whatnot. And, uh, Please, anyone listening to this, be patient with your booksellers. Yes. Be kind to your booksellers. You want them as friends. They're the, the nicest people <laughs> ever. Um, but yeah, so, so you know, and it, we're at a, a moment in time too where a lot of book purchasing is done online. So yeah. cover design, yeah. I think, is is changing with that world too. You want a sort of a bold, colorful image that really pops uh, if you see it on your phone or you come across it on Instagram or. Or um, you know, on a on a, a bookstore's website or something yeah, like that. Yeah. But but you were right in saying that Jackie really took great interest in the, in every element of production, from from the cover design to the weight of the paper to the the look of the final book. The book is a as an object of art as well as the words that were inside. So we talked a little bit about preconceived notions, and I think the one that that most Americans, at least Americans of my generation, are going to have is that. It's impossible for us to look at Jackie without looking at her through the veil of tragedy. No, no matter how hard we try to see the real person, it's it's just impossible for us to separate her from this sort of painful mythos of that that day in Dallas. Mm-hmm. How do you address that preconception, not only the, on the part of readers, but possibly on the part of, of yourself as well? Yeah, I, you can't ignore it, certainly, um, and yet you can't address it head on. You know, mm-hmm. certainly yeah. uh, there's not an opportunity. James, our our main character, James, the, the sort of writer who we're reviewing uh, Jackie through, uh, his eyes. You know, it, it would be very out of place for him to ask her about that directly or, oh, sure. or try to get her to talk about it. But you can observe. Um, you know, a certain sadness in someone. Uh, one of the things that I, I'm so appreciative for, from my editor, uh, the great Sally Kim at Putnam, uh, was, was through different drafts, she really pushed me, why Jackie? Why not a, another famous editor? You know, why not Nancy Lee? Or why not, sure, yeah. uh, you know, somebody else? Why not a fictional first lady who went on to have a career in in editing and book publishing? And hopefully that the, that the editor answers that question by the end. But it does lie in that sort of hint of of tragedy and the, and the way in which we view our past and the way that James views his past and some uh, emotionally difficult things from from his past. And she becomes hopefully the only editor uh, you know that this book could have had, and hopefully by the end of. The, at the end of the novel, you you see just why that is. And I think in their first interaction, you do such a good job of, you know, giving him that um, that starstruck quality, acknowledging her past as the first lady, but then showing her as a real person. You do it all in one sentence. He can't figure out what to say to her, and so he asks her a question about Charles de Gaulle, just like completely mm-hmm. out of the blue. Right. And, I, and I thought that was a really nice little moment. Yeah, I again it's fun to imagine, you know, just sitting down there, if you walked, you know, if you were sitting in a conference room and in walks, perhaps the most famous woman uh, in the world, you know, 
you would probably, I would be tongue-tied uh, yeah. a little bit and not come off as our most polished self. And that is really fun to write yeah. uh, as a writer, uh, thinking sort of like where your brain might go and how might right. synapses be misfiring and, and uh, whatnot. But that, that was, a, you know, I think that's a, that's sort of a, a, um, a you know, a big scene for the, for the book. And, yeah. and that was a lot of fun to write. So even if we take Mrs. Onassis out of the equation in that first scene, you still capture this kind of surreal experience that most of us as published authors have had of having that first time of talking to your book, talking about your book with your editor. And suddenly mm-hmm. here's this professional in publishing talking about your characters like they're real people, you know, and, and getting inside your head. What was that experience like for you when the first time it happened? It happened in a very uh, magical way for me. Again, my first novel was a book called Lily and the Octopus. Um, it was about uh, a, a, a sort of time in my life where I felt very emotionally stuck. And uh, it just coincided with a time that a dog that I had, an aging dachshund, was um, sort of succumbing to a, a brain tumor, which in, in that book, it's sort of, I swapped out the brain tumor for a small octopus that magically <laughs> appeared on her head. Uh, <laughs> so in the book, the, the person thinks he's seeing an octopus instead of, instead of a, a tumor. Um, that's a weird book, uh, certainly. And uh, I tried for you know, well over a year to find an agent and a publisher. And, and um, it was, you know, I kept coming up against sort of a doors closed or you know, walls dead end. Um, so much so that I decided to uh, self-publish. It was uh, something that I was very proud of as a piece of writing, but I understood, you know, this is this is strange. This is this is weird. Um, and I, I went so far down that road. I'd hired a, a freelance editor, uh, you know, just sort of to, to copy edit and help me uh, with a few questions I had. You know, I was uh, working with a graphic designer friend for a cover and and, and looking for someone to convert it to an e-file for. For uh, you know, an ebook, um, you know, so all these things that self-published authors do. And at the last minute, the editor that I hired, uh, just because I wanted the book to look as polished as possible, uh, was able to sneak it in sort of a back door at Simon and Schuster to me. And suddenly, things took off very quickly from there. So it was a whole whirlwind uh, experience for me. You know, it really was sort of like a fairy, a fairy tale. Yeah. yeah. Um, come true and so that was very magical and i did have this this i happened to have a wedding uh in new york that i was going to right at sort of a couple weeks after we closed the deal and so i was able to go into the office and meet my editor for the first time um and that was the you know all of that i was thinking you know that was very much present for me as i was writing this for james because it was like suddenly these you know, it's like going in Oz for the first time. You know, for us book lovers, you know, it's, what, what, what is it like, you know, inside the, the hallways of, yeah. of one of these major publishers? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, is. to me, that, you know, to me, that was like Charlie Bucket going into the chocolate factory or, yeah. or you know, seeing yeah. behind Willy Wonka's gate. It was, well, it was just so much fun. Yeah, I think we've all had that moment and it really is. It's, it's, um, it's like no other meeting you've been to in your life, you know. Now, James Smale, yeah. you're, James, your protagonist, um, is a gay man living in New York City in the early 1990s. Um, it's a time when you know the AIDS epidemic is still raging. Um, I, my my novel that's coming out in September, a lot of it is set in New York City in 1906. 
Um, and mm-hmm. I have a, there's a queer character in that novel, and it was very tricky to get the cultural and the vocabulary of a marginalized group correct in a historical novel. Um, I think Rebecca McKay does it beautifully in mm-hmm. um, yeah, The Great the Believers. Great Believers. Um, but I'm wondering, how, how did you create the world of James's New York? And, and how do you think gay New York in the 90s differed from, from what it is today? I mean, I have a kid out on a Pride March, even as we speak. It, it, I think it's a pretty different place. But how do, how do you see it as different? Yeah, I lived in New York City in the 90s, um, you know, as a young, uh, newly out uh, gay man. And it's interesting to revisit those times. You know, it's it's hard not to look back with that with the sense of wonder, but also great tragedy. Uh, You know, more people were dying in the early 1990s than even in in the 80s. Uh, Certainly, uh, you know, I had to revisit what... um, you know, so what hopes and, and, and dreams felt like for some of them, what the ceiling was, because, you know, certainly gay marriage was not something that I ever thought I would see in my lifetime when yeah. I when I first came out uh, in the early 90s. And and so it, it's hard to remember from this vantage point in 2020 or sort of 2018 when I was writing the book, uh, how quickly things have moved mm-hmm. and changed, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's still so much work to be done, and certainly we're seeing that uh, in the country right now, not just for gay rights, but for all civil rights. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and we continue to work to build a more just world. But uh, for gay issues particularly, there has been a rapid evolution in the way that gay people are accepted uh, in this country. And it's interesting to go back and revisit that. But what did relationship models look like, uh, you know, when they, when marriage was off the table? Um, you know, what did uh, monogamy look like in the time of, you know, all these people dying around yeah, us? Yeah, um, yeah. And, and so it, it, very interesting questions. Um, you know, a, a couple times I see the book in, in bookstores categorized as historical fiction, which sort of makes me laugh because you think of petticoats, but you think of 100 years ago or 1906 yeah, yeah. As, as you do, you know, when you say historical you know, and then and then the 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 converse of that, I someone joked on Twitter that all of our works in progress now are going to be historical fiction someday. <laughs> yeah. out, the world this twenty twenty is you know everything is changing so rapidly. Um, but yeah. just to look at a time which is not quite thirty years ago and see how different that was, and and that extended to how James worked as a writer. Oh, he sure, didn't have laptops yeah. Yeah. necessarily. It was pre-internet. How does he do his research? How does uh, you know, you know, he, he spends a lot of time in libraries. Um, but book publishing—it was a really interesting moment. Yeah, the in publishing, book publishing parties, you People, know, the yeah, but still, like, it, there was still lavish. There was still sort of the suede elbow patch set. There were still storied names that you know. Sometimes editors were more famous than their their writers. Um, but people knew that ebooks were coming, but they weren't quite here yet, and there was a fear that. Maybe within ten years, the printed book would be, you know, be going out the window. And I'm, I'm so happy to report that the printed book seems here to stay. But Absolutely. there was a lot of fear, and there was a lot of uh, flux uh, in in publishing at that time. And it was fun to try to address all of that. Yeah, well, I think there's ways in which it's harder to write a historical novel that's set ten or fifteen years ago than one that's set a yeah. hundred years ago. You know, um, yeah. you know, like what size was my cell phone ten years ago? You know? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I will say just as a quick aside, one of my favorite little details in in the book is they talk about going to Marie's Crisis and singing songs from Godspell. And when I was in college, I went with friends of mine to Marie's Crisis, and the piano player took a break, and I like 
played songs from Godspell at Marie's Crisis. So ah. <laughs> I was like, I got to that point in the book. I was like, yeah. Um, so yeah. Sp- well, good. Hopefully it rings true then. Um, speaking of the 1990s, there's a scene where James and Jackie sit down and watch the 1992 Democratic National Convention. And this was another moment that sort of like popped for me because during COVID, I've been cleaning out my house. And I, mm-hmm. it, as part of this, I came across this old VHS tape and I popped it in and it was – the 1992 Democratic National Convention. Wow. Um, well, I should have called you for all my reasons. Well, it was so weird because it, you know, in a way, it just seemed so, I I guess the best word I have for it is innocent, you know, by, by today's political yeah. standards. What was it like for you to return to that moment in political time? Well, it was an interesting, you know, in, uh, so Jackie started her career in the late 70s. You know, she certainly worked all through the 80s and right up until her death in 1994. Um, part of my choice in picking, you know, a moment in which to set this story, to me, the the, the backdrop of the Clinton-Gore campaign in 1992 was interesting. I, you know, I don't really write about it or tackle it head on, but it was an interesting thing to be unfolding in the background of the action of, of my story. Because part of the appeal of, of Clinton and Gore in 1992 was that throwback to Camelot and mm-hmm. the sort of younger dynamic leaders, uh, uh, you know, uh, that sort of Kennedy-esque um, hope and change and new generation of leadership that um, that they represented. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so that was interesting to to let that play out very subtly in, in the background of this of this book. I, yeah, eagle-eyed readers will uh, perhaps notice that the section titles for the book are all taken from Fleetwood Mac songs or lyrics from the album Rumors. Yeah, yeah. And even though that album came out in the late 70s, uh, it was very much, it was so prevalent to me in, that, in 1992 uh, because because the Clinton-Gore campaign played that endlessly at all their sort of stops. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah. Don't stop. Don't stop. And, yeah. and, and then I started listening to that album endlessly again in that year and I so associate it with that that time but um, it there was you know talk about how quickly things have have changed you know that was just just at the start of you know CNN had only been around uh, a few years the the sort of cable news culture and certainly pre Twitter pre internet pre gotcha pre uh, you know and pre the the, the horrible negativity um, you know that that we have that we have now. It was yeah, very interesting yeah. to write casually about politics in that time. Um, I was about to say, no, no matter what you're saying, I do think it matters what your your politics are. But but despite what your politics are, um, the, certainly writing about Jacqueline Onassis and and even Clinton Gore and 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 certainly Kennedy and Jack, you know, and Jackie in the White House, there was um, you know much more. Class, a genteelness, a civility, a politeness, and a polish that is missing today. Yeah, oh, and, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's hard not to be wistful for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, at one point, James voices, or at least in his own head, he has this thought, and I'm going to quote here from the book. He says, Is the mark of adulthood putting others first, or is it standing behind your own vision, your own work, your own view of the world? Do you see this as a novel in which James finally becomes an adult? And if so, which view of adulthood do you think he adopts in the end? 
Uh, yeah, I, I do think this is, you know, this is in the book, he's 31, 30, 31, 32 years old. Uh-huh. Uh, and he is sort of coming into his own, uh, you know, as an adult, as a, as a man and defining, uh, manhood, uh, for himself, which I think is something sometimes, uh, it's, it's a different journey for, for a gay man and certainly, um, was 30 years ago yeah. and, and more, when there weren't examples in the media as readily available uh, as there are today of, of how to to be a different kind of man than say the Marlboro Man or, yeah, or sure. whatever classic uh, you know images of masculinity there were, uh, but but much more than behavior, I think you know a sign of manhood is the, the morals you you develop, um, and I do think that. James sides, uh, you know, you know, coming to stand behind his view of the world and articulating uh, emotion, which he sees as important, um, is is you know something he he learns to do. But hopefully, he does it with uh, a kindness um, and a generosity of spirit that doesn't alienate others. Yeah. Jackie gives James this great piece of advice. I love this. She says, be like Fred Astaire. Don't ever let the hard work show. How do you accomplish that in your own writing? Oh, goodness. That's a, you know, that's a, an interesting question because I tend to overwrite in a first draft. Uh, I think so. I think having a keen critical eye, um, you know, and I'm very grateful to editors that I've had a chance to work with, uh, freelance editors first, and then and then my editors uh, at my publishers, and then copy editors. Um, there, I always look at. Uh, I always listen. Um, I always see what they're trying to do, even if I don't agree with exactly how they're doing it. Um, so every time I, you know, I get a draft back from an editor or, or in an editorial capacity, I try to treat it like a, a master class. Um, and it is uh, just happens to be the way I write as I write everything and then try to, you know, it's more like sculpting in a way. It's whittling it back. It's taking, taking things out until you have that, uh, until it doesn't feel so labored. Um, and that's definitely something I had to learn to do. Uh, but it's also something I try to accomplish with humor. I think in, in both my books, even though um, they're known as, as I'm sort of known for writing a little bit of tearjerkers in a way that um, there's humor to them too. Oh, yeah. And there, there's yeah. a, a lightness to the, to the humor uh, in them, which I think helps make things not feel overwrought. Yeah. I think there's an irony to the fact that, I mean, to me, this book, I would and I mean this in a positive sense, I would call this book an easy read. It was an easy book to read. It, you know, I, I yeah, read it in I about so. two sittings. That doesn't mean it's easy to write, though. I mean, it's almost the opposite. Um, it could be very right. difficult to write something that's easy to read, and, and it takes great yeah. economy of uh, of language and, and plot and everything else. That I, So I find a lot of times it's it's what you leave on the floor that defines the book that's on the table almost more than, than what's in it, you know. I agree. I, I agree with that 100. And I've got a lot on the floor. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, we mentioned before that James's novel is called Quarantine. What's your COVID writing life been like? And and I'm also curious to know. I'm starting to ask people this question. Do you think in five or ten years we'll have shelves full of books with the theme of quarantine? 
Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know uh, whether this is going to be a time we want to remember yeah. or that we want to, uh, you, you know, we have to remember or we're doomed to repeat. But is it going to be time we want to sort of uh, luxuriate in? Um, I, I imagine there will be, you know, how, how can you not? You trap a bunch of people together. How can there not be, uh, how can that not be a, a background for, for drama to happen? Yeah. Um, so... I imagine we'll be seeing things. I get a kick out of everyone sort of living the writer lifestyle now, you know, yeah. and people working from home, yeah. not having to put on pants or deciding, uh, should I have a fourth cup of coffee or a first glass of wine or, <laughs> you know, it's like, these, welcome to our world. Yeah. <laughs> welcome to our world. I and mean, in some of the sense, I think writers are, are well suited to, to quarantine. We're, we're kind of, uh, you know, it's a very solitary life, uh, solitary career. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, I, uh, yeah, I've been weirdly productive yeah. uh, during this time. I think part of what I suffer from is the, the, the sort of FOMO, as we call it, a fear of missing out. Yeah. Um, you know, where I'm always sort of popping up and, and trying to look on Instagram or Twitter or even out my window or texting friends and say, what, what, "What's going on? What, what am I missing out on right now?" And the truth is, I'm not missing out on a damn thing. Yeah, so nothing is the answer. Yeah. Head down and and work. <laughs> yeah. Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners some insight into writing and into Stephen Rowley. So if you're ready, we will begin. Is there 60 seconds on the clock? Uh, Yeah, yeah. So it's like one of those little chess timers, right? Um, Okay. (laughs) What word do you love to work into your writing? Feckless. Oh. (laughs) How's that for an answer? That's a good word. uh, yeah, I, I just think it's an interesting. Uh, it's a. It can be angry. It can be descriptive. It can be you know you know weak. It can it can mean all. It can yeah. be used in all sorts of ways. And of course, it begs the question: of What is feckful? You know, if this is feckless. Yeah. You know, so. oh, yeah. Uh, what word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Yeah, very. I'm just going to say very. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where's your favorite place to write? I write at home. Uh, I'm very, uh, affected by environment and I need to have control over environment. I wish I could be, well, particularly now, I wish I could be out in the public. We all can't, but, uh, you know, in a coffee shop or whatever, I, I, I'm too affected by temperature, by ambient noise, by yeah. music. I can get distracted too easily. And where could you never write? I'm not good at writing on an airplane yeah. for some reason. Yeah. Can't do it. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Oh, I I do not use question marks. I get called out on it all the time, <laughs> uh, particularly when writing dialogue. Yeah. I, I hear it in my head in such a specific way, and every time I see a question mark, it's that old inflection should go up. Yeah, uh, and I don't like I don't like them. I mean, I use them, but I don't like them. Yeah. What was the first book you remember reading? Reading myself. There, there's so many children's books uh, I love, but uh, I, the answer would have to be a Robert McCloskey uh, book. I grew up in Maine, mm-hmm. um, yeah. so Make Way for Duckling, yeah. uh, probably one of the early ones. But there's a book called One Morning in Maine that was, uh, you know, holds, holds a particularly special place in my, my memories. What are you reading now? I am. Uh, I just finished a book called The Second Home by Christina Clancy, uh, which is a, a strange adult sibling having to decide the fate of their childhood vacation home. And uh, I love a family drama. Yeah. 
So that was really great. And then I will I would be remiss not to mention uh, the fact that my partner has his debut novel coming out okay. uh, at the end of July. His name is Byron Lane, and his book is called A Star is Bored. Oh, fantastic. Uh, and we just got finished copies, and I got to, to read through that again. and had great fun. What book would you like to have written? Yeah, I, you know, I, I have an incredible respect for, for uh, Rebecca Mackay and the, the Great Believers. It was, that was one uh, where I wish I had, um, you know, tackled something that grand uh, head on. I, I, have, I have great respect for people who write sort of the expansive novel. I think mine are more contained and I'm more interested in interpersonal yep. relationships. But uh, something with a sprawling plot that tells us. Uh, who we are now. Which almost answers the next question, which is, what sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? I think I could write a romance novel, but I, I mean, and, and I don't mean like a bodice-ripping kind of novel, but, you know, a great sort of love story. Yeah. Because um, I kind of, I do circle that. My first, you know, it's a love story between a man and his dog, and the, and the, the editor is between a man and his mother, kind yeah, of. Yeah. I think I could write a, ro- a really romantic book one time, but I'm not sure that I will. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? I, I just gave your book to a friend. Oh. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Stephen Rowley, whose novel, The Editor, is available wherever books are sold. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. I've been out running a lot this summer, and when I'm on the road, I do two things. Maintain a safe distance from other pedestrians and listen to audiobooks from Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore, Whether you buy a single book, or like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you'd enjoyed Inside the Writer Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. On the next episode, I'll be talking to Stephen Wright, author of Coyotes of Carthage. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.